Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz. And I'm Chip Chantry. Ken, I'm excited. Let's do this thing. I'm I'm very excited uh, for today's guest. These are the types of episodes I had in mind when we first started this uh, this podcast. Um, we are we're going to be talking about uh, the history and the I guess the present of Cream Magazine, um, which uh, was this legendary rock and roll magazine that that ran in the seventies and eighties. I, I I just missed it, uh, but um, I'd always heard about it. It was always like this this mythological uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll magazine. Um, so with us today, we have um, we have two guests. Uh, we have the editor. So Cream Magazine, I should mention, Cream Magazine had, had just last year relaunched. And uh, they are back after a few decades away. Um, but we have with us their original uh, or, or their editor from uh, 1970 to 79 and their current editor, uh, Jan Uhelski. Well, I'm not the, the head editor, but I'm I'm part of a of a consortium of editors and brain trust. So yep. so I'm the editorial <laughs> advisor. I and um but I'm there. I'm quality control, and I actually, I actually do a lot as well. But there are there are other brains working yeah. here. Uh, well, very uh, sick brains. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's my fault for not uh, googling the word uh, emeritus. Did I even pronounce that right? No, and I, I got. <laughs> John kindly gave me a bump from emeritus emeritus, which emeritus. means you're out to pasture and you're kind of like phoning it in oh. to editorial advisor. <laughs> I just couldn't keep my hands out of it. You know, it's been Actually, my baby. Jan, I think it's I think it's editorial director in the new issue. So I think you and oh. Dave uh, Carney are, are are co-editorial directors. Okay, that's better. Thank you. Thank you again. <laughs> Look at that. We're we're breaking news. You just got a promotion. You didn't even know. That's right. And uh, our other guest is Cream Magazine's uh, CEO, John Martin. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. It says here you, you got your start. You were at Vice Magazine for a long time. Yeah, I was at Vice uh, from 2002 to 2021. So kind of saw the roller coaster ride of it from a magazine to digital entities to television shows and networks um, all, you know, running the gamut, which, you know, there's some similarities to what we want to do at cream. There's also some wild differences uh, for what we want to be doing at cream. But, um, you know, it was funny when I saw the documentary, the cream documentary, you know, I, I I'm 43 right now. Mm -hmm. And I saw the cream documentary when I was 41 and, you know, I had never even been to Detroit at that time, but a lot of the story really rang very true to me and familiar um, based on my personal experience being in Brooklyn and working at Vice in the early 2000s. And, you know, I thought there was a lot of similarities there. And um, that was what prompted the, uh, the uh, message I sent to JJ Kramer, the son of Barry Kramer, uh, the founder of cream and, uh, we were off to the races after that. Right. Yeah, I, sh I should mention. So the documentary you're talking about, there's a 2019 documentary called uh, 
Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. And um, Jan, you you wrote the documentary. I was a co-writer with Scott Crawford, and I was a co-producer with JJ. And um, I put the two of them together because JJ had this awful idea to leave his job as uh, head counsel for Abercrombie and Fitch to go pick up where his dad left off and to republish Cream. And I had been back to Detroit. I no longer live in Detroit. And I, I had a breakfast with his mother and I said, oh, it's a terrible idea, but I've got a really good idea. I have a, a gentleman, Scott Crawford, I used to work with, and he bugs me all the time about making a cream documentary. I bet they'd get along. So it was like one of those pancake breakfasts that actually a great idea came out of. So they started working together and then they kept calling me all the time. Like, what about this? Like, how do we get this person? So in the end, they just brought me on as the third partner. So the three of us did it. They're the, they're majority partners. And I'm, I'm like, again, like quality control and one of the partners, but I wanted to really make sure we told the story that really happened and you had to be there you know, to to recreate the Lesterites or the the whole ethos of we don't give it a kind of, yeah. you know, mentality that we had. So, um, I, I mean, I, I think we did a really good job. But honestly, like I said, it, it took a long, it was a long, hard road getting there and getting everybody right or having people remember things that were almost 50 years ago. Yeah, 50 years ago. And uh, it sounds like under the influence of uh, many, many substances, many different substances. So <laughs> many cheap sub substances. <laughs> at that point, we weren't paid. We weren't paid great. Like we used to get 2250 a week, if we got paid. So honestly, cheap, cheap booze and cheap drugs. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a question that I have because and by and by the way, I love the documentary. Also, seventy five minutes long, an hour and fifteen minutes, in and out, and you told the entire story. It's like, I, no offense to Cream Magazine or anything else, I, I I don't need a six part documentary on it. You you, it was so concise, and you hit, you know, just so many. I, I think it walked walked everybody through it so well. So it was it was it was a great documentary. Uh, one okay. of the questions I had was there was talk about oh everybody got paid five bucks a week. And, you know, that there was that line thrown out there. And then what you just said about the 22. Uh, how did you guys make a living? Like, was it just obviously at the we can talk about that the farmhouse you were living at. It was sort of a, a bed, you know, a room and board situation. But how were you guys getting by with with that little money? Well, there's that quaint little like living situation in the late 60s and early 70s communes. Mm -hmm. And it was a commune, really. I mean, we weren't a cult, but that was the only way we could do it. So we we had, over the, the years, we lived in downtown Detroit. I didn't live there. I still was living with my parents because I was still a teenager. And um, then we moved to the farm, which was way rural. It was scary um, rural. And then we moved to, like, the posh suburb. But at every time, part of our salary was that we had, we had housing and Barry Kramer would give us money for food too. So that was it. Cause there really were times that we did not get paid, mm -hmm. but you know, but we did actually have food. So that was something, but it, it was, a, right. yeah, that's true. It reminded me there's allusions to this in the documentary, but it, it almost felt like the magazine had a similar trajectory as, um, as an actual rock band 
Like it, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like a magazine just covering rock. It, it felt like a magazine with the very rock and roll lifestyle. And, um, yeah, I, I can't, this too can't, yeah, go ahead. Well, Cam, Cameron Crow brings that up, but it was really true, but I think it comes from the ethos and I don't know if this is curiously Detroit or not, but we never thought that the people we were interviewing were any different than we were. We thought that, you know, especially during those really early years is that we were all doing something, you know, we were all being creative. It was all coming from the same place. And if Mick Jagger happened to come, come to, to be interviewed, we treated him just like a guy who was the dentist across the way, which really was humanizing them and cutting them down to life size. But that was really what, Cream was best at is we made them seem like believable people, not just icons who wore like eight hundred dollars shoes even back then. You know, it was <laughs> that that we were we were the same. And I remember Lester used to say, "I always start every interview with the most insulting question I can think of." So he would get them off guard, and it wasn't like they were getting their ass kisses that they came to Cream, and they knew that. So I think that was really our specialty, and I think that that was really what lives on is that we made them accessible and we, and we thought that and, and we do. And I think to this day, I still think that. Oh, and yeah. what was, what was your tour, uh, your interviewing method? Were you guys on the road a lot, like traveling to these mm -hmm. shows? Were they coming to Detroit or over the phone? Um, How was that working? Um, very rarely do we do phone interviews. Um, Detroit was like a hub. It was a secondary market and everybody came through it. First of all, we had a, a, Ballroom it was like the Fillmore experiment. It was exactly like that. And we get all the big bands, all the English bands. And then there was Kobo Arena. There was a lot of venues, but also all of us probably went on the road for three or four days a month, mm -hmm. you know, and you got much better access. You got to see people in the act of being themselves and you would hang out with them. And there was no time limit. It wasn't like, okay, clock's going. You've got like 20 minutes. It's like you you'd interview them over the course of the time that you were with them. So I think that made for the reporter to actually see more than what you see now. Now you just have to infer. Yeah, definitely. It's probably a lot more organic too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you'd have real engagements, whether it was a fight or not. Usually it was a fight. Like Dave DiMartino, who's a later um, cream editor says something is there something wrong with me because i love offending people i mean i sometimes wonder like what the job application process was like it's like everyone has cream in my way but it's just people who would pretty much work for nothing and we're outsiders and we're in this kind of hippie community that detroit had which was very minimal because detroit was like a blue collar like car making kind of like populist place um but that's something that bound, bound us together. They say about Santa Fe, New Mexico, that you don't choose to go there. Santa Fe chooses you. Cream is the same way. It's like you'd walk through those doors and you'd either fit in or you wouldn't. You could take it or you couldn't because Barry Kramer would always greet you with something like, what the F are you doing here? Like, why do you think you should be here? And you'd have to have the proper response. Like you had to just not not let it bother you so it really was trial by fire like now like if you go on the road with metallica they're the same way 
You know, it's that same kind of outsider mentality and you're kind of cutting cutting it down to the people that you know are going to survive with you. Like you're all on this pirate ship together. And and that was it. Cream was a pirate ship. And it still is. I mean, the this version of Cream is uncannily similar, except that they all look like insiders where we all look like outsiders. But everybody who's working at Cream now has this rebel, like, strange left left of center personality and the way of looking at things. So I don't know, John, do you feel like you you hired people that same way? You know, like this had to pass the test trial by fire. I mean, you want to hire the freaks. This isn't an accounting firm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's America's only rock and roll magazine. You know, you, you got to hire people who have, you know, lived it. I mean, like half the staff are, you know, musicians and in their own bands themselves. And, you know, everyone is a, you know, it's a rock and roll lifer uh, crew. And that's, um, you know, that gives you the, the right perspective and then, you know, ability to, you know, understand what's important to the audience, you know? And I think that, you know, no, no AI, you know, chat GPT is ever going to be able to replace like the, the human opinion about a rock and roll band. Right. What do you think about that right now? That scares the hell out of me is the the AI stuff, the, the way it writes. I, as, as I've written for TV shows, I've written for a couple of different things. And it's like, I, what's what's your take on where that's going to be in a couple of years? Do you have any idea? Oh, I, I feel like we're just in the uh, we're, we're in the prologue to a Terminator movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it feels like. And and nobody's terrified. Like <laughs> we have like, hey, this is cool. Let's make a Seinfeld yeah. cartoon. This is great. It's not gonna eat our children. Well, um, I think it's it's interesting because you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the very unrock and roll concept of IP and um you know what what we should be doing as a company and as a brand um with what we create. And I think that maybe one of the undiscussed benefits of AI is that it makes IP holders more in the driver's seat uh, going forward. Like you look at the Seinfeld, uh, you know, yeah. the, the never ending Seinfeld show, like that's amazing. If it yeah. actually, if it could actually get to the level of like watchability and entertainment, it's amazing. And it puts whoever owns the rights to Seinfeld completely in the driver's seat. And you look at, you know, companies like Disney, you know, with their, all their acquisitions, it's all about grabbing IP, right. And grabbing characters and formats and concepts and, you know, turning that into, you know, repeatable uh, franchises. And, And I think that's, that's where when you get into something like AI, that the, the IP owners will benefit more, more than they already do. Um, I also think there will be a glut of content created by AI and there will still be a need for that, you know, new, newly generated, uh, never before seen uh, type stuff that, you know, AI is not going to be giving us because they're only going to be going on stuff that already is given. So I I don't think the, I don't think the human creativity is ever going to be extinguished, uh, by the by the AI world. Yeah. Um Jan, I want to speak on something you just said um when uh you were talking about the new cream magazine because mm-hmm. um 
you guys were nice enough to send over uh, a login for me so so we can go in and look at it. So um, last night, I, I bought, just so you know, I, I purchased your documentary when it came out in 2019 mm-hmm. um, because I'd always heard about this magazine. I, I was... Um, when I, I, I'm, I'm 46. So I think the first magazine that I got into in music was Rolling Stone, but it was, I was 13 and, um, cream was something I heard like older brothers taught, like my friends, older brothers would be like, Oh, you, you missed the boat. You should have seen what cream was like. Um, so after watching the doc, I rewatched the documentary last night and I remember I I watched it and I was like, how in today's environment can this magazine possibly pull off the irreverence that they had back in the 70s and 80s? I just I it doesn't feel like uh, it doesn't even feel like something that could be done today. And um, but I'm happy to report. So I, I I watched the documentary. I smoked a joint. I, I logged in to uh, I logged in to uh, the the digital version, and the first issue I looked at, you guys had an interview with John Hinckley Jr. <laughs> so I was like, right. "Oh, that's still that's still pretty irreverent." Like Nailed they're they're it. still yeah. So um, I'm happy to report that uh, yeah, the magazine seems just as um, relevant now as as it did then. And John, John, can you talk a little bit about where people can get it and the form? Because it's a couple different forms right now that you can they can you can get Cream Magazine. Yeah, so you can either read the physical magazine or you can read a digital version of it on Cream.com. Uh, what the John Hinckley article that you mentioned was part of a suite of digital content that we did from when we announced our return and started taking orders for print subscriptions up until when the magazine came out. So we, you know, we were publishing content to kind of give people the idea of a cream is coming back. Uh, You know, check out the type of content it's going to be in the magazine. We put it on the website, but we're not a digital first media company. Mm -hmm. We're a subscription driven rock and roll entertainment brand. And right now that is a magazine. So, you know, there's a quarterly publication um, that you you know subscribe to it's $79 which a lot of people said oh my god that's so much money but then when you realize this isn't like a rag and the printing quality is really high and it's really it's much larger than you know original cream um, you know the sensibility is the back of the toilet it certainly can't fit on the back <laughs> of your toilet anymore um, but it's you know it's a coffee table book in essence um, so we have print subscribers and then we have people who subscribe digitally uh, and they read it in sort of a, um, it's sort of a rich uh, page turning format on the site um, as well as, uh, as well as sort of a more traditional digital uh, format of the articles. But, um, you know, so we want people to be able to read, uh, you know, the archives online and the current issue as well as get current issues in their mailbox, you know, four times a year. Yeah. Yeah, it, it look it looks you know I haven't seen the print edition obviously, but even even the the digital is it's laid out so great and easy to maneuver. I was I was bouncing between new issues and old issues uh, seamlessly last night. 
Oh yeah. Oh, so, so that's, that's. I guess this is an audio podcast, mm. so the, my visual <laughs> work here. But, but you're, you're showing a, us an old uh, an old issue next yeah, to that, a, a new issue. Yeah, that's and, a large publication. That's great. It's great, but I, I had that one. I had so much fun last night. You know, Lester Bangs is is somebody growing up. I always heard the name, but I, I don't know that I ever actually had access to anything where he'd written. Uh, you know, to to see his writing. So last night after watching the documentary, to be able to go back and read all of these Lester Bang uh, articles, Lester Bang's articles was was wild. Um, I, I loved it. I think this is great that you guys are back. And John, where are you guys based right now? Are you, Do you have a home base? Do you have people all over the country? We are all over. Uh, JJ, our chairman, is in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I split my time between New Hampshire and New York. Uh, the majority of our editorial team is in Brooklyn. Uh, our head of marketing is in Chicago. Uh, we have a marketing and merchandise team in Los Angeles. And then Jan is in, uh, is in Palm Springs. So um, it's all over. It's, it's the, the, the glories and the pain of the remote working environment that we've all uh agreed to to be in it's you know there's there's challenges but it's pretty cool at the same time and it, i think it makes it more special when we all get together uh which we need to do more often jan can you imagine when you were when you were living uh on a in a farmhouse 24 <laughs> 7 uh getting this magazine out every month that that one day everybody would be scattered around the country contributing i would have prayed for it honestly <laughs> there's only one bathroom <laughs> so it was see, like you said something yeah. in, you said something in the documentary that the bathroom was on the second floor and that uh barry who owned the magazine uh his his bedroom was right next to the bathroom and you talk right. about a 24 7 work environment where the the whole staff lived on this farmhouse it seemed like everybody was either dating or sleeping with each it seemed very incestuous and you talk about you'd wake up in the middle of the night at 2:30 to go and to go to the bathroom and your boss would be standing in the doorway uh lecturing you about how he didn't like the interview you did or he didn't like this layout and you you're just trying to go to the bathroom at 2 in the morning I know. And you think you could go back to sleep after that? You could not. So honestly, it was, I'm not going to say it was an abusive relationship, but you knew that Barry, who was like the the king of the hill, was going to do that at a certain point. I remember when the movie editor had quit and it was about 1130 at night and I was asleep and I just, I I see, here's this whoosh of air. I didn't have a proper door and the, (laughs) And all of a sudden, Barry is in my bedroom and he said, you're doing Confessions of a Film Fox for now on. I go, I am. I am not. And he goes, yes, you are. Either that or you're fired. The next day, I started becoming the face behind the Confessions of the Film Fox for the next five years. But that's how it would happen. It was always so random and it was always so arbitrary. Barry used to say this. He'd go, there's two ways of doing it, my way and the wrong way. <laughs> so, but again, back to even making the documentary, I mean, there were fist fights all the time. I mean, it was physical. 
Dave Marsh would always, while Dave Marsh, who was our editor, mm -hmm. and again, is probably the same stature as Lester, but serious. He was the adult in the room and Lester was the child. And it, it was, you know, th there'd be times where they'd be on the floor with brooms, you know, it, it was, it was a little scary. It was a little dangerous. It was a dangerous magazine and they were dangerous people at times. I mean, you know, you were fighting with your minds. It's like you wanted to get what you wanted. Barry always wanted to put big gazillion selling bands on the cover. And we always wanted to put the Stooges on the cover. <laughs> so we, we landed in the middle. <laughs> so I'm with you. I would have, I would have always put the Stooges on the cover. Um, yeah. do, do you have, so I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place, but when, when you were based out of Detroit, you, in the movie, they talk about, um, how the, the, uh, the rock star, the Detroit era rock stars of the day would, would just walk in and out, you know, it was like, it almost became like a hangout. So, um, what do you have, uh, do you have a great Iggy pop story that didn't make the, the movie? Not, I mean, I have great Iggy Pop stories, but none of them were of that era or that the only time he ever showed up was the time where he came in to see Lester and, and Barry Kramer was that Maddie had, hadn't said hello to him and dumped the contents of Lester's really messy uh, trash can over his head. But, um, you know, it's like Ted Nugent would show up, you know, and he would come in in, in full regalia. And usually they would want to see Lester because Lester was the one who riled them up a lot more. Um, Kiss came when once for a photo shoot. Um, they, they were doing the cream profile, which we still do, where they drink Boy Howdy beer. Mm -hmm. And the art director had talked them into posing without their makeup. And this is very early days. And they were never seen without their makeup. Right. And we had the photo of that. And we never published it. But Oddly enough, I had moved to Los Angeles and became the L.A. editor, the West Coast editor. And a neighbor who worked for a gossip magazine, Rona Barrett's um, gossip magazine, stole my photo books with those pictures. So they were not published in Cream first. They were they were published oh. in Rona Barrett's gossip magazine. Oh, no. But that was one of the things like somehow the art director fast talked Kiss into, you know, revealing themselves. But basically... People wanted to be part of the cream universe. Uh, Toby Mamis, who's Alice Cooper's um, manager to this day, said when he was managing Susie Quattro or, or Blondie, after they got to the airport, the first place they wanted to come was cream. And often it was in the terrible farmhouse, you know, but they were always showing up. But it lends that thing to that we were all the same. You know, we mm -hmm. we just treated them like, like, like I said, the dentist down the down the um, hallway, you know, it was, and it was, I think it was good for both of us because there'd be times I'd come in the office and Ian Hunter would be sleeping next to Lester's desk. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> that, um, that farmhouse sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. Like I, I could not imagine, uh, no, just being with your coworkers 24. Like I was thinking like you guys, like watching the documentary, it almost reminded me of um, like Fleetwood Mac, like all of the different inner office relationships. Yeah. Like it almost felt like the recording of rumors 
But then I was like, I was, I was watching the part about the farmhouse. So even Fleetwood Mac got to go home at the, you know, like they left the studio and they at least got to like go to sleep and, and recharge their batteries. But you were, you couldn't even go to the bathroom without stepping in it. It's, it's, it's like you check in and you don't check out like Hotel California. <laughs> I mean, I had a job at a boutique that I used to work at before I started at Cream. So I would go there to close it down. I just had like, just that was my job and I would drive like like an hour in both directions and the only good part about that is because we were all so poor that I would bring back jeans and clothes for everybody okay <laughs> I did not pay for them <laughs> but um it was you know that was the only out and then when we would go places I had a car and I think Charlie Orange the art director had a car and maybe Roberta Kruger had a car so I was always taking people places because there were only three cars between all of those people too. So we would go places together. Like we'd go see like Fleetwood Mac. I mean, it was like we were on mass and go to movies together. We'd go to, to Taco Bell together. So you really nailed it when you said that we never got to be alone. Yeah. So. I, I can't, I can't even imagine. Look, Chip, Chip and I are both um, stand up comedians. So, uh, we're alone constantly. Yeah, to Just me, that's alone. like that's sort of like I I couldn't imagine being on a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by other comedians twenty four seven. I know um, it's part of what I love is that I'm alone <laughs> most most of the time. I do know, but then I think what happened is it got very competitive. Like, think about if you're you're in like a showcase with a lot of other comedians and you're trying to best each other. We were all trying to do better than the other person. I mean, it was a really high standard. It so it, it it's um I've been in work environments like that. I I worked for my parents at one point, and my stepfather is uh we get along great now. But when I worked for him, it was, it was brutal. He, he sound, I mean, I think he had the same philosophy of like, let me create as much chaos as I can, mm -hmm. because that then then we can see who who can step up to the plate. You know, he, I think he he believed that like great great things come out of chaos, and I think they can. I think Cream Magazine sort of proved that, but. It's not uh, it's not sustainable. Well, you know, it's funny because I cause what it does is spilled over to the way we interviewed people. And, and to this day, like when we're talking about features and things that I do, I always say in the editorial meetings, it's Jan against the rock stars because <laughs> I will I will argue with them. It's like the, the, the Iggy Pop story that I didn't tell is I was um, at his house in Florida and I was interviewing him. And he was remembering something, but since I quasi grew up with him, I, I've known him since I was 15. And um, he was recalling something. I said, no, no, I think it was this way. And he just closed, he kind of closed down and it got very tense. And he ends the interview suddenly after, and he goes, I got to pee. I know peeing is the theme here. <laughs> and I go, okay, fine. I'll wait here. No, he actually unzips, he takes out his dick and he pees maybe six inches from my foot. And I say to myself, 
oh yeah, this is probably the last interview I've ever, I'm never going to have with him. And it turned out to be that that was true. But, you know, I don't mind shaking things up. I guess some of that permeated my own sensibilities because I do think great things come out of chaos, not when everybody's getting along. You know, you yeah. do need to shake things up and to see where where they they land, you know, in some unusual place, because I'm not really interested. And I think none of us, I think John will agree, is that we're just not, covering people in an ordinary way. It's like a different angle of light. It's like putting them in an uncomfortable situation and seeing how they they work out. Like, you know, you don't want to take them someplace like skating or take them to like some dinosaur museum, but you want to do something and put them in a situation that's unusual in, a, in things that they usually do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's very premium. And do, do you think cream today, like John, are, are you aiming for that that same type of of ethos or uh, obviously like I feel like rock stars now are, are a lot more aware. I, I, I could be wrong, but like a lot more aware of like the way they look, the way they come off. Are you tr- trying for that same angle or, or do you have to approach it differently now? Well, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the artists have such a more they have more control over their image and what they're putting out there because, you know, they own their own social channels and, and, and websites and what, and what have you. Um, so we approach it and we say, look, like we don't want to just be on the conveyor belt of uh, reporters when you're doing your, your, you know, your press tour or your junket or what, what have you for your new record. And, you know, we're getting our 15 minutes to ask the same three questions that everyone else is asking. We're not interested. And if that's the, if that's what's on offer, from the sort of the the PR team, we say it's a pass. Uh, you know, we say, look, we want to do something that's a little more interesting and maybe gets people out of their comfort zone a little bit. And, you know, some artists are not super into that and they're hyper control freaks and some are in on it and they get it. And they're like, yes, I get it. This is why I would want to do something with cream because it's going to be different than what I'm going to get anywhere else. And that's what we're going for. And, you know, that's what, quite frankly, the audience wants, because, you know, we don't want to just put out content that can be seen or read anywhere else. It, it should feel like it should be in cream. It should have a point of view. It should have some personality. It shouldn't just be regurgitated press releases. And are you focusing on, you know, rock and roll, hard rock? Is, is that what you're doing? Obviously, the landscape is very different today. Uh, are you going out to different genres or, or are you focusing on rock and roll? I mean, it's still America's only rock and roll magazine. There are some, there are some, you know, uh, uh, outliers, you know, you might see, uh, you know, in one of the last issues we had uh, Micaiah McRaven in there, you know, you, you'll see some that aren't like traditional, you know, three dudes with guitars uh, and drums, like, but, you know, this is a rock and roll magazine and the business is really, you know, betting that the pendulum is swinging back to rock and roll right now. I think it is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've, we've said that, you know, when, you know, when in the first, in the first era of cream, rock and roll was still pretty young, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was really only, you know, 20 years old, 25 years old at that point. And so there was a lot, it was, it was more monolithic culturally than it is now. And in, in the years since then, it's splintered into all these subgenres and micro niches. So you feel that rock and roll is not big anymore, but it actually is. It's just, there's a lot of smaller groups uh, that are out there all doing their own thing. 
And, you know, whether you're into hardcore punk or you're into, you know, alt country, you're both rock and roll fans. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's where cream comes in. We want to be sort of a big tent rock and roll personality uh, for, you know, bringing these stories under under one roof. Uh, do you have a band right now that you you think is is either wildly under uh, underappreciated or somebody who's going to be somebody's big that you're you're keeping an eye on? You know, it's funny. I think uh, Viagra Boys are great. Um, That's and, a name you know, that, I keep that hearing. To me, said that to me. I saw them at uh, Desert Days uh, last fall, and you know, I was like, this is probably the similar vibe as the Stooges, uh, you know, oh, who I never, you know, obviously I'm too young to have seen that. Um, you know, I love idols. I think they're great. Uh, the idols Sheer are mag yeah. writes perfect pop, hard rock songs. Uh, I think white reaper is great. Um, so there's a lot of younger bands out there. And then like all those bands I mentioned are pretty big. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's a, you know, an army of younger bands who are playing small shows and they're kind of, you know, they're kind of punk bands that are, that are doing it. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, I think our editorial team really likes to dig in and sort of champion, you know, the up and comers and, and people that no one's talking about. And we want to be the first to, to really sort of plant our flag and, and, and say that this artist is going to be, is going to be big. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's important for us to, to be a music discovery service for people um and you know turn people on to their new favorite their new favorite bands that you know that's a you know the, the, well there's some saying about like you know that the the best people are are the ones that turn you on to new music you know that's what cream wants to do that's great that's great yeah um why why now why bring it back now well, aside from the pendulum swinging and we think of that it's the right time um, culturally, the team came together at this moment. You know, the documentary had been done uh, and it was out there. Um, I was wrapping up at Vice looking for a new project. Fred, our VP of content, was looking for a new project. And, you know, we had we had we had been kicking around the idea of a music festival actually this is right before covid and obviously covid hit and we said well i guess we're not doing a rock and roll festival anymore <laughs> and you know that we had been seeing all this this success with sort of niche publishing companies and you know i had been consulting with a friend uh, who runs a magazine called mountain gazette which is like a outdoors uh out publication um you know that hunter s thompson edward abbey wrote for and you know throughout the whole time i was working with him i said god i could do this for rock and roll there's no one doing this sort of high touch uh, really you know cutting edge content in the rock and roll space in a printed format or really even in a digital format and you know, I just want to get, I should get a brand to get behind this and that, you know, existed. There's all these old dusty titles that are out there that no one's doing anything with. And, you know, th the pick of the litter was obviously cream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got in touch with JJ and said, what are you doing with the magazine? I love the documentary. And he said, let's talk about it. So, you know, it's, everything is timing. So, um, 
I'm curious, unless I just misunderstood when I watched the documentary, but I, I thought they said after uh, after Barry uh, died um, that they eventually sold the magazine. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's JJ when it ended up in L.A.? Yeah, well, yeah, to uh, Martin Jarish, I, I pronounced his name wrong, the, the man who um, published Nylon, mm-hmm. bought it, took it to LA, took the staff, the, the existing staff, Dave DiMartino, Bill Holdship, Dave Sprague, and I don't, I think, and Jay Kordash, and moved it. And JJ, as you saw in the documentary where he told his mom, when she said, she told him she had to sell the magazine and he said, I'm going to get it back for you. And the whole idea was he has spent his whole life getting the magazine back. I He's must have an missed intellectual. That. Oh yeah. Well, the crazy part is, which I, this is the part I really love is JJ is an intellectual property lawyer. And if you think about it, it's like, I, I'm sure it was subconscious and conscious that that's, using those skills and and that legalese to put the magazine back together again. But it got really flashy. There was a, a guy named Bob Matthew who had the rights for quite a while, just the license for it. And he he made a botch up of it. It was terrible. And honestly, it was kind of just a vehicle to sell merch, like little cream underwear, mm-hmm. which was a little misogynist anyway. And JJ went to, and he put out a coffee table book and JJ went to one of his signings and picked a fight with him. And the guy was signing the books and he, he like, like ran a Sharpie all over JJ's face and it ended up in page six, (laughs) but that did not deter him. I mean, JJ spent years and years and tons of money putting it all back together again. And finally after the documentary, he did. So that that was it. The timeline was very serendipitous, too, but it wasn't just luck. I mean, he really has been working on this for like the last 20 years or so. And what capacity is he working with the magazine now? What's his official title? So he's the the chairman. Um, And because he has a uh, he he has a day job, Uh, he's the he's like the global head of intellectual property law at Abercrombie and Fitch and lives in Columbus, Ohio. You know, he's pretty devoted to his day job. Sure, sure. Um, Cream is something where he steps in and helps us um, with legal issues and some finance issues um, when we need to. And, you know, of course, you know, he wants to make sure that the cream brand is represented in a way that does uh, uh, does uh, justice to what it was uh, back in the day and um, makes it on the right path now. But, you know. It is it is quite nice having a uh, a lawyer uh, as your chairman because you don't run up a lot of expensive legal bills. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's quite nice. Um, and it sounds like um, sounds like he had the right idea. I love that he worked that hard to get it back, just to sort of hand it off to the right people who who he trusts, and that he's not. Uh, he's not inserting himself, you know, more than than what he needs. Because, I mean, let's let's be honest, like usually the the boss's son is the biggest fucking nightmare of everybody. So so the fact that um, I love that he just worked that hard just to just to get it back in the right hands, and and isn't trying to put his own stamp on it. Yeah, I mean he he you know he's a rock and roll fan, but you know. 
not probably of the same ilk as, you know, say Fred, our Fred Passaro, our VP of content. Um, and they, you know, they both know a very different uh, type of music that they would consider rock and roll and, you know, know, have different tastes and such. And I think that's important because there is probably a tension there that might, might be similar to, to Barry mm-hmm. uh, and the staff back in the day. Um, you know, because, you know, JJ says, you know, look, like we are a rock and roll magazine for everyone. And, you know, the editorial staff says yes. And back in the day, we always, the cream always wanted to do more on the Stooges. We're still remembered for being a magazine about the Stooges. We're not remembered for being a magazine about Led Zeppelin. Right. Despite Robert Plant and his jeans being on the cover, you know, it was, um, so I, I think there's that there's a, a healthy tension there. Um, but, you know, JJ fundamentally understands that, you know, if you want a rock and roll tonality that is progressive and modern and um, can, can speak to the audience that we want to attract, you know, you have to, you have to hire from that audience. You have to hire people that can speak to them. Well, that, that's, that's great. That's uh, it, it's great that he's, he's hands off enough to, to let you do, what you got to do um i mean he's a hands-on at times and it can be really annoying but you know <laughs> there are uh, you know but overall i think it's um it's it's a it's a good it's a good dynamic mm-hmm. um you know and i think that it's it's funny because there's so many little things that go into making a magazine and no one can catch everything right yeah uh, our executive editor dan who you know he is a editing machine and you know it nothing gets by him except some things do and you know <laughs> you never know who might catch something or who might have a funnier caption on you know a photo or who might you know be looking at something and say wait a second this layout doesn't make sense because look at the layouts around it so you know magazine it I think the best versions of it, it, you know, they're, they're representations of the people that make them. Um, and, you know, it's not just a singular one person's singular vision. Like if it was just my vision, it would be, it would be different. If it was just JJ's vision, it would be different. If it was just Jan's vision, it would be a little different, but you see the personality of all the people involved, which collectively creates the cream tone of voice. Like there's not, one monolithic like this is the cream voice right it's the collection of all the people and all the opinions and and you know all the the different ways of looking at the rock and roll world that that make it special right i love yeah like how it's not like how rolling stone just became jan warner's voice um that took me i wish cream had been around when i was a kid because that took me a few years to learn <laughs> when- totally and you know for you know we're, we're 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 roughly the same age and you know for me i missed cream right like i was i was nine when cream stopped publishing in in 1988 89 yeah and you know the biggest band of my childhood was guns and roses mm-hmm. and you know for a <laughs> for someone who was you know about nine years old in 89 like that was it they would have been the cover stars for cream for the next four years. Yeah. Cream only covered them once. And it was a, it was a somewhat of a pan 
of Appetite for Destruction towards the end of Cream's publication. So my whole era that I grew up with was mostly missed by Cream. And, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. We talk a lot about the, the classic era of Cream, the era that Cream missed, and then the era that we are now representing going forward. And we want to hit, uh, we want to have artists and coverage and subjects from all those areas. Because um, it's important to show sort of the continuum, the narrative of rock and roll, how there are threads that you can pull that go back to the 50s that are still happening today. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, um, that's what makes it fun. I mean, rock fans, I think in a lot of ways are like historians. And, you know, we just oh, like absolutely. to understand how these stories all fit together. Yes. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show a million times that uh, working backwards is is uh, half the fun of of rock and roll. It's when it's. I mean, I remember being a kid when I when I first got into the Stones, and then you would devour because back then all you had was these interviews or these features in magazines. That was the only access you got at all. So. I remember you would, you, you know, as soon as you found one and then you'd hear Mick talking about Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters, then you were like, oh, I guess I need to check that out. Mm. Um, the the working backwards has always been, I, I think, one of the uh, like most joyous things uh, about music. Um, yeah, James James Hetfield's wearing the Motorhead shirt, so you go listen to Motorhead yes. and then you discover Hawkwind. You know, it's like, it's it's very cool. Yeah. yeah. And and you go buy the the Hawkwind T-shirt because rock stars always used to teach you how to dress or how to be cool. You know, it was when during my era before I started when I was reading Sixteen magazine, it was either Beetle Wives or it was the Beatles or the Stones showing you what to do. Like if you wanted to be like this, these are the things that you do. So um, it, to me, it was instructive. I mean, magazines taught me how to live anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. I've always been a magazine writer, and I always try to impart that too to give somebody like a trail, like a breadcrumb trail that I pick up from from the artist I interview. And I don't know what it is, and I know this is probably really cornball, but I always think somehow an artist has tapped into something bigger than than the rest of us. And if if this makes them different, it's like whatever that pipeline is, that thing that Keith Richards says all you have to be is awake, yes. you know, to get a song. Although the fact is he wrote uh, satisfaction, satisfaction when he was sleeping. A, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so it's like, like screw that one. But, you know, it, it's that, that's the idea I'm going with. And um, Jan, you there's such a great story about you in the documentary. Um, as as you were the only rock journalist to ever uh, dress up in the Kiss makeup and perform with them on stage, um, how did that how did that come about? Well, they weren't the Kiss that we, they became at mm-hmm. that point, and we were. I had met them at a, a Neris panel, like about three years prior to that, like right when the first album came out. So I wanted to put them into the Cream magazine, but the whole staff was against me. They would call them rock and roll clowns. They were just New York dolls, emos. And I just really lobbied for them hard. So I, they said, okay, you want to put them in the magazine. You're writing every single thing. So I became like the Kiss editor. Mm-hmm. So I had such incredible access to them. 
I was just Uhelski. They'd never even used my, <laughs> you know, my first name. And um, one night, Connie Kramer, Barry's wife and JJ's mom, was reading Esquire magazine. And there was a piece um, a woman named Blair Sobel had written about being an ICAT for a night. And Connie said to me, could you do this with a band? And I go, oh, yeah, I could do this. I could do this like tomorrow. She goes, who would you do it with? And I go, I do it with Kiss. I dress up like them. So I called their label. And again, they weren't the Kiss that they mm-hmm. had become. And they had done things like kissing contests to promote themselves. So I said, could I um, could I get on stage with with Kiss and write about it? And they go, OK, uh, let's. Let me get back to you. And within an hour, the um, head of promotion called me back and he said, you can, but with one stipulation, you're not to call them a glitter band. I go, oh, no problem. <laughs> so um, within within a few days, they landed in Detroit and I went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania with them and performed with them and wrote that that um, story. Because when I during the 70s, there used to be an ad of these women waking up in these untoward places, like at their job or on the back of a motorcycle, and they would be wearing like normal clothes and just their maiden form bra. So I named it. I dreamed I was I was on stage with Kiss in my maiden form bra. <laughs> so um, that was it. And honestly, I it changed my whole life. And I knew what it felt like because I'm not a musician. What it felt like to be on stage in the sellout show and getting all that blast of energy back from an audience. It was addictive. I, I understand the, the psyche of a musician because of that. And but the crazy part is, and I just realized this about six months ago, that when I did that, it was a sellout. I mean, it was only 5,000, but it was a sellout. I had never heard from anyone in the audience who was there. It's almost like a staged moonwalk. Like it, it's like such a strange phenomenon to me that I just wrote about something that might not have even happened. You know, I could have made that fiction. So what did, what but, did you, did, did you sing? Did they give you something to play? Yeah. I, I thought like I was, they put their makeup on me. Like everybody did a portion of my space. And then I, suited up but i brought clothes very kiss-like clothes and i they're walking the stage and i thought i was going to do the whole set like silly me and um (laughs) i actually just did this last song rock and roll all night Mm -hmm. and i went on for the whole thing i had a live mic i had a guitar which i didn't really know how to play but paul had shown me how to how to how to really use it you know he kept going low and sexy you've got to hold it low um so i i look totally authentic i mean honestly that's what i mean i think i probably look so much like kiss that that's why nobody knows there was a fifth kiss so, so. They, they didn't announce they didn't say anything or introduce you or anything like that no it's just like you were just there. no yeah, yeah i was just there yeah, yeah. that's great. So it's crazy and that really does probably give you a little bit, I would assume a little bit more, like you were saying, like you got to feel that. So you got to look through their eyes a little bit more as much as you wanted to make them just like you. It's, I'm sure maybe your writing, you know, you, it, you had that feeling. Did. So, yeah. It, it changed everything I wrote after that because I, I had a perspective of what a musician really felt and why people cannot give it up. You know, like when you yeah. see people dragging out their tired shows, like, why would you? It's like yeah. drugs. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, as as comedians, like I, I mean, I, Ken and I have been doing it for about over fifteen years now. I, I've been doing it, and I I've done much better shows, much bigger audiences. I performed for you know two thousand people, but it's that first night upstairs at that Irish bar. Like I still remember that first wave of laughter, and it's like you'll never. I can't. 
there's no drugs or alcohol no. or that I can ever do that ever will change that shitty night with 60 people in that room yeah. of that first wave of laughter. It's like we're 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 stuck. We're hooked now. We yes. Can't. Yeah, yeah and, and I've I've tried I've tried with drugs and alcohol, but there is there is not there is nothing better. There is no better rush. Um, I love this story too. Uh, they they did um, they had Lester Bangs uh, want it was going to go review a Jay Giles show, and uh, they yeah. they told him that. And by the way, the Jay Giles band is it just is so underrated like they were just such an amazing i've 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 only seen peter wolf live i've never seen them i i i was kind of young uh when they broke up but um those live albums i'm like i don't know how that band isn't in the rock and roll hall of fame just off their live performances but they had lester bangs come and review the band he he wrote his review on stage with them while they were performing he they had a little desk and typewriter and then at the end uh he stood up and smashed the typewriter like p townsend would with the yeah. guitar and he was so nervous i had to push him up the stairway <laughs> to go to the thing i kept going no you have to go through with this which was funny because he had a big personality he was brutally confident but that got him but he became an artist later radio birdman so mm -hmm. you know he got the bug too. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, and it probably, probably for both of you, uh, went a long way just as far as like, hey, th this is what it's like. This is how hard it is to to be on the other side in front of thousands of people. Oh yeah, but it was so satisfying. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, listen, I think, uh, I I think we've said it all. But um, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on. Um, I'm not just saying this. I absolutely, I had so much fun going through the archives last night and looking at the new issues. I really, I didn't think that the new issues were going to hold up to to what the old issue, you know, to what the old magazine did. But it absolutely does. It, no, great. It, it's, it is it's such great articles. Yes. Thank yeah. You. So go to uh, go to Cream Mag C R E E M Mag and get a subscription. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a subscription because I I want the I want the print edition. Yeah. Um. And um. That's it. Is there is there anywhere uh people can find you guys? Do you do you have social medias that you want to plug? Do you just want to say get a subscription to Cream Magazine? Yeah, go check out us on socials. We are at Cream Mag, uh, and the website is cream.com. Um, you can find sort of all the content and some extras uh, on the socials and um, on the website. And, you know, if you like rock and roll, subscribe to Cream. There it is. That's great. Thank you so much, guys. This is, this is so much fun talking to you. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having us. Bye. Yes. Thank you so much, Bye. and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for coming on. Bye.